Chapter Twenty Four of Pocket Island. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Pocket Island by Charles Clark Munn. Chapter Twenty Four. Pocket Island. When the sun rose red and sullen the next morning, and our three friends had breakfasted and were hoisting sail on the sloop, Frank said. If the wind holds up as it did yesterday, we can run to Pocket Island and back easily. There is no chance to land, addressing Manson, or even to go within half a mile of it in the sloop, but I can lay her too while Obed rows ashore in the dory. One hour there will give you all the ghost hunting you want, I guess. The only thing I don't like is the way the sun looked this morning. Old Saul appeared mad. When they were under way and the sloop was heeling over before the fresh morning breeze, Manson said, "'I do not want you to take any chances on my account, Frank. We can go there some other day.' "'Oh, I'll take no risks,' replied his friend. "'It's not the wind that worries me, for we can reef close, and the sloop takes big seas like a duck. It's these beastly coast fogs that come in without warning and absolutely bury you. If the wind shifts, then your compass is the only salvation. Manson was silent, for he was only a passenger, and as his friend's guest, he felt it unwise to offer any suggestion. "'We are all right,' continued Frank, scanning the horizon, "'so long as the wind holds this way, for we can beat up to the island by noon and have a fair run back. Manson was in no mood for talking, for the strange strain of reflections that had come to him the night before still oppressed him, and he silently watched the little island ahead growing nearer. When they were within a mile of it, the wind began to drop away, and by the time they could see the many rocks that surrounded it, rising like black fangs out of the white froth of the wave-wash, it died out entirely. Frank looked anxious. "'You had better,' he said, addressing Manson, "'eat a bite while Obed and I furl the jib and lower the topsail. He can then row you ashore in the dory. I do not like the way the wind acts.' When Manson started for the island in the small boat, he was almost ready to give his visit up, for the little look of anxiety on his friend's face, coupled with the ugly-looking reefs between which Obed was rowing him, and the forbidding shores of the island itself, made a strange feeling of fear creep over him. Beneath it, however, was that queer influence that, like a beckoning spirit, seemed to lure him forward in spite of himself. "'I'll land you on the lee side,' said Obed, as he pulled into the narrow opening between two cliffs, "'and wait here for you while you go across to the harbor on the other side. It will save time, and I can keep an eye on the sloop.' That Obed felt it necessary to watch the sloop was not reassuring to Manson, but, bidding him good-bye cheerfully, he leaped ashore. When he had made his way up over the confusion of rocks that confronted him, and out of sight of the dory, he stopped and listened. It was a silent and desolate spot, but, true to his expectations, 
As he passed there, he caught the sound of a low, moaning bellow that rose and fell, almost dying away, and seemed to come from the farther side of the island. He looked and listened, and then, with a parting glance at the sloop half a mile away, started over the island. He soon found he had been rightly informed, for its surface was the worst tangle of rocks and scrub spruce thick between them he ever saw or heard of. He crawled in a little way and then retraced his steps and followed the shore, but even that was almost impassable. He worked his way slowly along until, all at once, when he had climbed a ledge, he found himself looking down into what seemed like a sunken lake surrounded by a wall, with a narrow opening on the seaward side, and so still that not a ripple disturbed its surface. Cautiously he crawled down to the edge and glanced about. The spot seemed to fascinate him, and as he gazed at the irregular cliff wall shutting him in, he felt he had descended into a den infested by evil spirits. Then he started around the shore of this harbor, avoiding the weed-covered rocks, for the tide was low, and as he was slowly moving along, he came suddenly upon a keg caught between two rocks, and just above high-water mark. Its staves were warped and gaping, and when he stooped to lift it they fell apart and disclosed another keg inside. This he found was heavy, and as he stood it on end he discovered it was filled with some liquid. For a moment he was dazed by the discovery, and then he turned it around till he came to a piece of metal midway between the rusted hoops, and this he pried off with his knife and found it covered a small bung. Trembling with excitement at this mysterious find, he hunted for a pointed stone, and with it drove the bung in, when to his intense surprise he was saluted by the well-known odor of rum. For an instant his heart almost stopped beating, as there flashed through his mind all the vague tales of this island having been a smuggler's hiding place long before, and then he looked quickly about him. Naught was visible save the frowning rock walls and the still cove. Then he stooped again and inserted a finger in the keg and smelled, and then tasted. Rum it was, and no mistake, and the best he had ever sipped. But what a find! And what a place to find it in! He looked about him again. Crusoe, when he came upon the footprints in the sand, was not more surprised than Manson at this moment. Unconscious of the lapse of time, or where he was, or how he came there, he gazed upon that harmless keg, as if it held some ghastly secret instead of rum. Where did it come from? Who brought it there? Why had it been concealed in an outer shell? What did it all mean, and was he about to make some horrible discovery? Once more he looked about, and then, in an instant, he found himself staring at a dark opening beneath an overhanging shelf of rock not two rods away. Breathless with excitement now, and feeling himself yielding to some dread spell, he almost sprang to the spot 
and oblivious of weed-covered rocks and mud, he went down on his hands and knees and peered in. It was a cave opening, sure enough. Trembling still, and yet lured by a weird fascination, he crawled in a short distance and then paused. The hole looked larger inside, and as his eyes grew accustomed to the gloom, he could see it sloped upward. He felt for a match, and lighting it, tried to peer further in. The match burned out and left him unable to see as far as before. Then reason began to assert itself, and he turned and crawled out, realizing the folly of trying to explore a cave with lighted matches as an aid. When once more he stood upright outside, a strange thing had happened. Not only had the tide crept up almost to the cave entrance, but the sun was no longer visible, and as he looked up to the top of the rock wall that environed him, a white pall of fog was slowly settling down and hiding all things. He looked at his watch. He had been on the island over four hours. With sudden fear he started around the way he had come, and when he reached the keg of rum an inspiration almost made him lift and carry it to a place of safety, well above high tide mark. Then he retraced his steps to where he had left Obed, but the dory had gone, and no one was there, and to add to the situation, the fog had so shut the island in that he could not see two rods over the water. He hallowed again and again, but received no answer. He was alone on Pocket Island with not a morsel to eat, not a blanket to cover him, night coming on, and a fog so thick that he could not see a rod ahead. Even all this did not for one moment obliterate that mysterious keg or cave discovery from his mind, but he felt that he must take steps at once to protect himself from coming night and darkness and possible rain, for he knew that when the fog lifted his friends would return. The first thing was to build himself a shelter and then a fire. Here his army experience came in well, and he searched until he found two rocks with a level space between, and laying sticks across and cutting spruce boughs to pile over them and others to serve as a bed, he soon made ready a place to at least crawl into when night came. Hunger began to assert itself, but food was out of the question. That keg of rum came to his mind as he worked, however, and when the rude shelter was complete, he searched the rocky shores for some large shell, or anything that would hold a small portion of the liquor. He found a coconut that the sea had kindly cast up among the rocks, and cutting one end off with his pocket knife and digging out the interior, he once more returned where he had left the mysterious keg. Twilight was near, and the dark cave entrance and frowning walls about the little harbor seemed more ominous than ever. He made haste to fill his rude cup with rum and return to his shelter. Then he gathered fuel, for fire at least would be a little company, and a strange dread of spending the coming night alone there on that haunted island was creeping over him. He did not believe in ghosts, but when he thought of the peculiar sequence of events, 
mingled with a slowly growing belief that some mysterious power was leading him, he knew not whither, a feeling that he was soon to face some ghastly experience, came like an icy hand grasping his in the dark. He could not shake that feeling off, and as he gathered driftwood, bits of dead spruce, anything that would burn, and piled the fuel near his shelter, his dread increased. What strange spell was it that had kept him four hours beside that wall-enclosed harbor, unconscious of the lapse of time? Why had he not seen the fog coming until too late? And that keg and cave! What did all these mysteries mean? Then, searching further along the shore for driftwood, he came suddenly upon a tangle of wreckage piled high among the rocks. It would serve as fuel, and he began to drag large pieces to his shelter. Three trips he made, and was just lifting the end of a broken spar, when, right at his feet, and half buried in the sand, he saw a white object. The night was fast approaching, and he was in a hurry, but some impulse made him stoop, and there in the gathering gloom he saw a grinning human skull. End of chapter 24 Recording by Roger Moline